0: Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the fourth and final part on the Great Northern War and the Battle of Poltava in 1709. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, now might be a time to do so, and then come back to this one. But if you have already done so, or don't mind anyway, then let's begin. On the 2nd of May 1709, Charles XII, King of Sweden, laid siege to the Russian fortress at Poltava on the river Vorskra. Many of his army had died on the gruelling march all the way from Saxony and now numbered about 30,000, together with Cossack reinforcements of perhaps 7,000. Peter's force of some 75,000 men marched to relieve the siege and on arrival, built a fortified camp on the Vorskla, four kilometres north of Poletava. The Swedes suffered a severe setback before the main battle. While observing the Russian position on the 20th of June, Charles was struck by a stray bullet, injuring his foot badly enough that he could not stand. He had to be born on a litter and so unable to take operational command and to provide the inspirational leadership which had hitherto proved so effective. Battle was necessary for although a Swedish victory was unlikely to destroy the Russian army, it would relieve pressing supply problems, help get support from Stanislav Lishinsky in Poland and might tempt the Ottomans and Tatars to commit themselves in his favour. The Khan of Crimea was keen to join the fray, but to engage in war against Russia first required approval from Constantinople, which was not yet received. It was too late for Charles to turn back across Poland as the Swedes would be vulnerable to a Russian counter-attack. The Russian army was in a defensive position inside their fortified camp by the river. And also, having constructed a T-shaped system of redoubts or temporary field fortifications in the gap between the woods to the southwest of the Russian camp, which was the most convenient route for the attackers to take. The Battle of Polotava began as the Swedes launched their attack at dawn on the 8th of July 1709. The redoubts served their function well by slowing down the Swedish attack and also creating confusion. While well, the principal objective Was the Russian camp, some regiments wasted time attacking first redoubts. When Major General Rus, the commander of six battalions, had finally decided to break off the attack on the redoubt, he had lost touch with the main army. He began a retreat south, away from the main Swedish force, hurried by a detachment of Russian infantry and cavalry until he was forced to surrender. Writes Robert Frost in his book on the Northern Wars, Rue's misfortune was the decisive moment of the battle. The rest of the Swedish army had succeeded in smashing through the redoubts and then turned onto the plain in front of the Russian camp. The Swedish cavalry, meanwhile, had successfully swept their Russian counterparts from the field. The Swedes formed up for an assault on the camp, but without Rue's battalions lacked enough men to be sure of taking on the bulk of the 25,000-strong bulk of the Russian army in the camp. If the Swedes could press home and attack with vigour on the camp against the Russians, confined in their camp, their enemy would not be able to bring their superior numbers to bear. Waiting for Rus, however, lost them valuable time and the moment was lost. The Russians threw off their defensive mentality and fired out of the camp to maximise their overwhelming numerical advantage. When the Swedes did attack, they were outflanked on both sides. The Russians stood their ground as they pushed forward. The Swedish infantry broke and began to flee. The Swedish army was defeated, but it had not surrendered, and about 17,000 men fled south. At first, the Russians, unaware of the extent of their victory, failed to pursue. Among the Swedes, it was decided that Charles would go ahead with a small force to the Ottoman Empire, where he planned to mobilise support for a campaign against Russia, while the other survivors followed behind. However, this main bulk of the Swedish survivors became trapped at the town of Perevolochna by the river Dnieper. When they were caught by the Russians, they could have fought on, but exhausted, agreed to surrender. And so, 17,000 Swedish survivors were stripped of their uniforms and weapons and forced to watch the grisly execution of the Cossacks, who Peter chose to give no mercy. Then there were forced marched across the field of Poltava, strewn with corpses on their way to many years of captivity in Russia. Most Swedish prisoners would never see their home again. Charles, with a contingent of just 600, escaped and headed to the protection of the Ottoman Empire, whose leadership was sympathetic, but split about whether to give Charles direct support. With the Swedish king trapped away from his kingdom, his enemies quickly began the work of partition. Augustus regained possession of Poland, where Stanislav Leszczynski, without Charles' support, abandoned the throne. Peter the Great seized Riga and Rival and launched the Russian Baltic Fleet. Elsewhere, in one grim rearguard action after another, the Swedes clung desperately to their territories, and a Danish invasion of Scania was defeated. Emperor Leopold and the maritime powers, keen to keep the German princes committed to war with Louis XIV in the Spanish War of Succession, offered to guarantee Sweden's remaining possessions if Sweden agreed to refrain from attack on the enemies. Charles declined the offer. Not realizing the perilous state his kingdom was in, and so fought on, unwilling to accept the loss of some territory, and risking losing yet more. Charles's last hope was to persuade the Ottomans to attack the Russians. Sultan Ahmed III, on the whole, preferred peace to war and had brought a period of much-needed stability to his empire. But together with the Khan of Crimea, Charles the succeeded in persuading the Turkish ruling circle to declare war on Russia in the autumn of 1710, although no action was immediately taken. Peter the Great, buoyed with confidence after victory at Portava, saw an opportunity to achieve further consolidation on the Black Sea. The recent capture of Azov had meant that the Russians were tantalisingly close to direct access to the Black Sea. So rather than biding their time for the Turks to move, Peter decided to himself launch an attack into Moldavia, then Ottoman territory, in the spring of 1711. Ahmed was finally persuaded to mobilise the army to counter the invasion. In a campaign with distinct parallels to that of Charles before Portava, Peter found his potential Balkan allies divided and willing to provide less support than promised. The Tatars conducted a scorched earth policy, causing the Russians to lack food and supplies. Instead of extreme winter cold, the Russians were faced with summer heat in unfamiliar and drought-stricken land. Through faulty intelligence, Peter failed to see the strength of the Tatars and Turks, well armed with artillery and greatly outnumbering his own forces. He found himself surrounded on the banks of the river Prut in Moldavia and decided to sue for peace, instructing his representatives to accept any condition except slavery. Peter was immensely relieved to discover that Turkish terms, although onerous, were not as bad as they could have been, much to the disappointment of Charles, who tried to persuade the Ottomans to make much tougher demands. By the terms of the Prut Agreement, Russia gave up newly acquired Azov and had to dismantle fortresses on Dnieper and withdraw its army from Poland. Charles felt betrayed, disappointed the Turks didn't drive a harder bargain. The Russians promised Charles safe passage to Sweden, but he was unhappy with assurance he received, and so continued to stay on Ottoman territory. Peace was formally agreed between Russia and the Ottomans with the Peace of Adrianople in the year 1713. if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Peter his attention once more on the Baltic, seeking terms of peace with Charles, but in the meantime taking advantage of the Swedish king's absence to make further gains. Already in position of the Baltic littoral, from Viborg in Finland to Riga in Livonia, he moved further into Finland, and also in 1714, Peter's ever-growing navy defeated its Swedish counterpart and increased his control of the Baltic Sea. Peter worked with Sweden's neighbours, who each had ambitions for a slice of the rapidly receding Swedish Empire. In 1713, Prussia entered the war, seizing Stettin and West Pomerania, and the next year signed a treaty with Russia, guaranteeing their mutual conquests. In 1715, Peter also signed a pact with George, Elector of Hanover, who had just become King of England and had ambitions for his electorate to take the Swedish-held ports of Bremen and Verden. However, in 1716, Peter overstretched himself diplomatically. He married his niece to the Duke of Mecklenburg and at the same time intervened in a quarrel between the Duke and his nobility and helped him suppress the noble-dominated estates. The Tsar intended to turn the duchy into a satellite and to keep Wismar for himself as a naval base. He even envisaged a canal to link Wismar and Hamburg which would allow Russia to trade with the west without passing through the sound and paying its tolls. Russian interference in Mecklenburg, which showed every sign of becoming permanent control, led to a crisis which made the rest of Europe acutely aware of Russia's strength, even more than the Battle of Portava had done. Most concerned was George, Elector of Hanover, whose electorate bordered Mecklenburg. Frederick William I, however, sided with the Tsar. A division therefore grew between the former allies, who were attempting to force a peace on Sweden. Russia and Prussia, on the one side, and Hanover and Denmark on the other. George I could naturally rely on support from England, but also tacitly from Austria and France. Although George and Peter's confrontation over Mecklenburg began because of Hanoverian interests, it very soon developed into genuine British concern about Peter's control of the Baltic provinces and about Russian naval strength. In fact, writes the author Derek Mackay, The rivalry which now emerged between Britain and Russia was to be one of the most important features of the Great Northern War and its final stages. The British government considered trying to establish some kind of eastern barrier in a similar way that the Austrian Netherlands was a barrier to French expansion in the West. Under pressure Peter called off a planned invasion of Sweden in 1716 and in autumn 1717 withdrew his troops from Mecklenburg. George's diplomatic efforts bore more fruit in 1719 when he concluded an alliance with Vienna and intimidated Peter into declining to act when Hanoverian troops moved into Mecklenburg, expelled the Duke and restored the power of the noble estates. The Russian threat to northern Germany was effectively removed, at least for the time being, although Russia's position on the Baltic and its eastern shores were as strong as ever. This quarrel potentially gave Charles XII of Sweden an opportunity for diplomatic manoeuvres. Charles had finally left the Ottoman Empire in 1714 and arrived at the port of Stralsund. Instead of sailing straight to Sweden to take personal control of his country, which had now endured fifteen years of war, He wasted another year in vain trying to prevent its fall to Prussia. He didn't stay long in Sweden, for he immediately raised another army for a new campaign. He invaded Norway with the aim of detaching it from Denmark, and so try and secure better terms for peace. The campaign continued until December 1718, when, besieging the fortress of Frederick Sten, he looked over a parapet of a trench and was shot through the head by a bullet. As for Charles' legacy, he had begun his reign well when quickly fending off an attack from Denmark and although the Polish campaign had dragged on, it was ultimately successful. But the defeat at Portava proved disastrous for the Swedish Empire, compounded by Charles' exile in the Ottoman Empire when his stubbornness to negotiate lost his kingdom much more territory than the defeat at Portava by itself made necessary. The result at the Battle of Portava could have gone differently, and at the River Prut, the Ottomans failed to take a golden opportunity to disadvantage Russia, which could have benefited Charles and Sweden. Yet when Charles launched his invasion towards Moscow, he must have known he was taking a big gamble and the possible consequences of the campaign if it didn't go to plan. Charles thus left Sweden militarily weak and financially bankrupt, and its days of one of the significant military powers of Europe was over. The death of Charles XII and the withdrawal of Russia from northern Germany together rapidly changed the situation. The new regime in Stockholm of Charles' younger sister, Ulrika Eleanor, and after her abdication in 1720, her husband, Frederick Hesse, were compelled to abolish absolutism and to accept aristocratic parliamentary control in Sweden. Hanover, Britain and Prussia settled with Sweden with the Peace of Stockholm, agreed in February 1720. Hanover received Bremenverden and Prussia gained most of Western Pomerania, including Stettin. Sweden, largely through French insistence, managed to retain Wismar, Rügen and Stralsund as its last foothold in Germany. Prussia effectively left the Russian camp, and allied with King George I of England. In June the same year, Denmark also agreed a peace where it was forced to accept Swedish possession of its one-time provinces across the Sound, and to abandon its claims to Vismar and Rugen. Swedish negotiators were conciliatory, having been encouraged to believe that they could compensate for their losses in the Western Baltic by receiving outside help to recover Estonia and Livonia from Russia. Britain's Chief Minister, James Stanhope, intended to build an international coalition to help Sweden against Russia and to recover Swedish losses. But Britain's attention was diverted by the South Sea Bubble Crisis, the collapse of a joint stock company. The close connection of the English court and ministers with the company destroyed the existing Whig ministry and rocked the Hanoverian dynasty. With Britain no longer able to raise the necessary firepower to intimidate the Tsar, the other powers were reluctant to challenge him. Seeing little prospect of real help against the Tsar and subject to repeated devastations of their coastlines by the Russian Navy, Swedish resistance to Peter's demands collapsed and they used French mediation to conclude the Peace of Nystad in 1721. Sweden agreed to cede Livonia, Estonia, Ingria, Kexholm and part of Karelia to Russia, who in exchange returned the rest to Finland to Sweden. The long-term effects of the Great Northern War were in many ways more important for Europe than the War of Spanish Succession, which took place at about the same time. The balance of power in Europe shifted dramatically. Most important was it paved the way for the rise of Russia, which transformed itself into one of the great powers of Europe. The most obvious symbol of Russian success was the brand new city of St Petersburg. Crucially, Peter the Great conquered the Baltic provinces, giving Russia access to the sea. As it happened, Peter's successors were less interested than he was in the navy, but they continued to expand the army. Peter's great energy and stubborn determination to reform his country had paid off well, although his critics point out his legacy of draconian domestic policies and autocracy, and that his efforts at westernising didn't lay the deep foundations which he had hoped for. Roger Neville writes that he, quote, laid down a veneer of Western civilization and culture which heightened the tensions in Russian society. A small privileged Aristocracy was established which both aped the West and was not of it, and was separated both by its wealth and education from the mass of the people. For Sweden, the Peace of Neustadt was catastrophic, as they were demoted to a second-rate power and never recovered. It was less obvious at the time, but the Great Northern War also fatally undermined the position of Poland-Lithuania. As a result of years of warfare, the Commonwealth's countryside was left devastated, its economy shattered, and the population contracted by a quarter. No less profound in the long term was Poland's effective loss of independence. After Peter the Great's victory at Portava, he could easily have annexed large swathes of Polish-Lithuanian territory. Instead, he opted for indirect control of the Commonwealth through Augustus II, who owed his restoration to Russian military intervention. In the year 1717, Peter imposed a settlement on the Polish parliament or Sejm. Known as the Silent or Dumb Sejm, it sat in a chamber surrounded by Russian soldiers, the deputies forbidden to speak. A Russian mediator laid down, amongst other things, that Augustus II could keep no more than 1,200 Saxon guards in Poland. The Polish army was limited to 18,000 men and the Lithuanian at 6,000, while Russia would leave a force in the Commonwealth as so-called protection. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth thus achieved respite from civil war only by a humiliating agreement which meant its dependence on Russian military support and so ceased to be an independent factor in European politics. The epilogue of the Battle of Potava was no less disastrous for Ukraine. In fact, writes Sergei Plaki in his book The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, nowhere else were the consequences of the battle as dramatic Ivan Mazepa made a big gamble on the outcome of the Swedish-Russian conflict, and lost badly. He died two months later in exile in Ottoman territory, his efforts to save independence for his fellow Cossacks having ended in failure. His decision to ally with Charles came too late and without preparation. The end result was to divide Ukrainian society even further, and to make it even more dependent than ever on Muscovy, and to hasten what turned out to be the dissolution of of Cossack autonomy. The first twenty years of 18th century Europe had been highly turbulent, as the War of Spanish Succession and Great Northern War caused great suffering and political dislocation. After the treaties of Utrecht and Nistad were signed, the continent mercifully enjoyed a period of relative peace. However, dynastic instability still threatened the outbreak of conflict, as indeed occurred with the War of Polish Succession, 1733-38, and War of Austrian Succession, 1740-48, which I will cover next. It's always great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, Twitter, at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or you can write to me directly, carl, at C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash historyeurope, where you can sign up for $3 a month to gain some extra material. I hope you can join me next time when we're beginning to talk about the War of Austrian Succession. Until then, all the best and goodbye.